0: Welcome to the CFITrainer.net podcast. Today, we're taking a deep dive into fires where the ignition was associated with CSST. That's corrugated stainless steel tubing. There's a lot of confusion and misunderstanding about CSST, and we're hoping to demystify that today with two guests who have special expertise and experience in these types of fires. They'll also have a warning for you. Fires involving CSST are on the rise, and we're going to talk about why and what you need to know as an investigator or other professional who responds to fire scenes. CSST is in almost every new residence constructed today. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge that this episode discusses the line of duty deaths of firefighter Nathan Flynn and Captain Josh Laird in two separate but nearly identical incidents where a lightning-induced arcing event caused a small hole to form in the wall of a corrugated stainless steel tubing and created a sustained gas flame that ignited structural members and combustibles in the basement or crawl space ceiling. Both firefighters were conducting suppression on the first floor and fell through the floor into a burning crawl space or basement. By discussing these tragic losses, we hope to spread awareness about fire causes involving CSST and save lives in the future. Our hearts are with Firefighter Flynn and Captain Laird's families, friends, and departments. Special Agent Adam St. John with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives is a licensed professional engineer, an IAAI CFI, and an ATF CFI candidate assigned to the Baltimore Field Division. His primary responsibility is fire and explosion origin and cause examinations of incidents affecting interstate commerce or where ATF assistance has been requested. He regularly teaches classes on fire dynamics and fire investigation. Prior to becoming a special agent, he was an ATF fire protection engineer at the fire research laboratory for nine years, performing technical laboratory testing to assist fire investigators in determining origin and cause. He also responded with the national response team to provide expertise in engineering, industrial process, And Fire Protection Systems. He's also a former captain and EMTB with the Montgomery County Maryland Fire and Rescue Service. Special Agent St. John has received numerous commendations, particularly for his work on the Stricker Street Fire, where three firefighters were killed in the line of duty. He's with us today to talk about CSST fires and his research into the line of duty death of firefighter Nathan Flynn. Joining Special Agent St. John is Captain Craig Matthews of the Fire Investigation Division of the Howard County Office of the Fire Marshal. He is an IWI CFI, IWI FIT, IWI ECT, ICC Certified Fire Inspector, and a NAFI CFI. He is a lead investigator with over 350 investigations. Captain Matthews is also an Ignitable Liquids Detection Canine Handler with more than 250 callouts. He has received several departmental awards, including Firefighter of the Year, the Meritorious Service Award, and the Bronze Medal of Valor. Captain Matthews was the local investigator at the fire where firefighter Nathan Flynn died. Special Agent St. John and Captain Matthews, welcome to the podcast. We appreciate all of your work and your time with us today. I watched the video that was produced about the fires that took the lives of Firefighter Flynn and Captain Laird. They were very well done. And difficult to watch. Uh, Two firefighters that seem to be doing their job so well, and yet what seems to be a very unique type of fire surprised them with brutal results. All of your research and teamwork that went into that final product will surely make a difference in the future. I hope we can make a difference today by talking about what you've learned. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you, Rod. We appreciate it. So thanks again, gentlemen. I wanna talk generally about CSST first, then let's get into the line of duty deaths of firefighter Flynn and Captain Laird. We'll start basic. What is CSST and how's it used in residential construction?
1: So CSST, uh, it's also known as corrugated stainless steel tube and it's a thin wall of stainless steel. It's flexible, it bends without kinking. in, uh, typically has a thin protective jacket Uh, typically of like a UV-resistant polyethylene material. Most CSST applications we've seen uh, is either a yellow or like a black jacket. Typically, your yellow jacket is a non-arc-resistive jacket, and typically your black jacket is an arc-resistive jacket. Uh, There's three different types of CSST that we're seeing, uh, at least in the Maryland area which is the yellow, the black. And then there's also a multi-layer jacket CSST, which is also black in color. It just, it's on top of the thin wall of the stainless steel, there's that UV resistant polyethylene material. And then there's a layer of uh, aluminum mesh, and then it's topped with another layer of that polyethylene material. the arc resistive jackets are more prevalent these days than the non-arc resistive just last year we uh, went to the senate in maryland and we were able to get the yellow the non-arc resistive uh, essentially banned for new installations in the state of maryland to where now the only uh, application for csst in new construction is the arc resistive jacket the csst will pretty much survive, um, the fire and fire investigators should analyze for origin and cause purposes, especially after known lightning events. Um, but even we've seen it to where, uh, common household electrical current has also arced to the CSST. So if fire investigators are seeing this, they should, uh, examine the CSST in their area of origin.
0: It also sounds like they should make themselves, uh, aware of the different types and and maybe look at examples of the different types uh as they learn more about this because i think you went through three or four different types that would be visually
1: different correct yeah the uh the arc resistive um and then the multi-layer is is kind of similar uh just a visual inspection of it um without kind of you know cutting through that outer layer uh protective jacket um, to see, um, how many layers is there and whether it's the multi-layer or just the arc resistive jacket. And the purposes of the arc resistive jacket is essentially to give it some more surface area to disperse that energy from a lightning strike. Well, that sounds like a, a great improvement.
0: So what's the hazard of CSST? How, how does
2: it fail and what happens when it fails? Yeah, Raj, I'll, I'll talk about this, um, really quick and, and just take a, a step back, you know, where CSST is used and why it's used, right? So it's it's generally since, you know, the early 2000s and even the late 1990s, it's just replaced uh, black iron pipes. So we're talking both about residential structures, but also commercial occupancies. And and really it, it was replaced, um, or it is replacing black iron pipe because it's, it's a lot cheaper and easier to install. So you had that big cost savings. Um, it initially was created as, as a safer alternative um, due, to, due to seismic um, you know, earthquake activity. It, it bends with the structure, so it doesn't break in the same way. Um, but unfortunately, when we talk about the, you know, the hazard of CSST, um, because it's so thin and flexible and cost-effective, it, it's more susceptible to, to arc energy. So electric um, arc energy can actually cause an arc hole to form. So, you know, I, what I want the fire investigators to understand is, you know, this is, it's a relatively new technology. Um, there's over a billion linear feet of this stuff installed um, across the United States, and it just continues um, to become more and more popular. So, um, you know, essentially, it's just a means of, of conveying fuel gas throughout a structure, um, typically a residence. And it can be anywhere from really where it comes out of the ground, uh, feeding the gas meter all the way to to the end appliance. Um, so you know, talking specifically, you know what what are the hazards of CSST? You know, why should fire investigators care? Why should firefighters care? Um, you know, it's it's both a, a fire and and it can be an explosion hazard too. So um, you know, th- this stuff is is relatively safe um, for for a lot of applications um, until you have uh, an electrical arc uh, actually occur, and, and that can cause the arc hole to form within the CSST. Um, so that, that electrical arc current can be a function of, of lightning, and that's probably where we see it most often, is as energy associated with lightning is dumped into the structure, whether it's to the CSST um, or from the structure um, that then arcs to the CSST, um, that concentrated arc energy actually um, causes a, a small arc hole to form within that wall. Um, obviously, we talked about before that the the CSST contains pressurized gas. So, you know, at that point, the second part of this of this hazard of the of this failure process is, you know, that that per- perforation in the gas line will, will leak some of that fuel gas. Um, now, what can happen, and what typically happens, is that arc will cause the 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 to form, but will also ignite the escaping gas. Um, alternatively, based on the pressure of the gas, the size of the hole, the presence of obstructions—that actual flame can can um, will not sustain in certain circumstances. And then you have the the uh, the potential for an explosion through a fuel-air explosion and an accumulation of gas. Um, you know these these gas systems don't have circuit breakers like electricity um, uh, uh, like electrical systems do, so that gas is just going to continue to flow um, until either the you know the propane supply runs out, which could take days. Or in terms of natural gas, it'll flow uh, indefinitely, and either um, you know have that sustained flame or it'll it'll leak that gas. So when we talk about the potential hazard, um, you know this stuff is used more than ever. And then when you have a leak, it's going to continue to 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 leak or sustain flaming or or leak the gas until somebody turns that gas off.
0: I I, I want to make sure we're not missing this, and and it might be me and my lack hearing lacking hearing. Um, I remember one of the things that we we talked about was the fact that it's hidden as well, the location of of, of the lines. Did we discuss that, or did you discuss that?
2: Yeah, it's 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 something that's kind of unique to CSST. You know, we as engineers design you know your household electrical system um, to contain failures. You know, we we put um, the connection points and junction boxes, or or the wire and conduit. Um, so if a failure occurs, it doesn't necessarily ignite the structure right now, when we talk about CSST um, it, it's run pretty much anywhere you it, it'll fit. So we're talking interstitial spaces between floors and walls. And when you have this arcing event, like you said, Rod, um, frequently, uh, the first fuel ignited is the structure and that structure will continue to burn. You'll have the mass loss, the consumption of the structural components, um, as that fire continues to grow. And that's when we start talking about collapse hazards to to firefighters and fire investigators as well.
0: Yeah, I it was uh, watching what you did with the modeling and everything else and to see that and to to see how long people were looking for fire, uh, the firefighters were looking for fire, was just, I think, so must have been very surprising for a lot of folks. Um, let, let's talk about the line of duty death of firefighter Flynn it was 7005 WoodScape Drive. Can you briefly
1: summarize the incident, um, including how the fire started? Yeah, I can uh, summarize that. Uh, so the fire department was initially called for smoke inside of the house. When the fire department arrived, they had what they initially described as lazy smoke presenting across the front of the house. Um, and what we've come to find out is that this house was 8,400 square feet. So the fire department did not realize at the time that they had a large fire burning inside of the structure. Um, and that's why it was just presenting kind of with lazy smoke, because it takes a long time for 8,400 square feet to essentially fill up with that smoke and to start, you know, producing, you know, turbulent uh, high velocity smoke, uh, which is you know, your typical indicator that you have a, a pretty decent work in fire inside of the structure. Um, but as far as the investigation goes, the fire was classified as natural by the investigative team, which resulted from a lightning strike to a large tree in the backyard. And then the energy that uh, came down that tree then went to the ground and essentially unearthed the soil, almost in like a six-inch trench from the tree to an underground storage propane tank which was about 50 couple feet away from the tree. And then from there, the energy then followed the uh, copper supply line of the propane from the underground storage tank to the structure. Once it reached the structure, it then transitioned to CSST. There was a short line of CSST that then went to a manifold. The CSST then branched out off the manifold to each individual appliance that was supplied by the propane gas. Um, what we realized was that that energy from that lightning strike, once it was on the CSST, it was essentially trying to find its path to ground and it, uh, resulted in an arcing event, uh, to a piece of metallic that was close by in its effort to try and find its path to ground, which then resulted in the arc, uh, hole forming in the CSST releasing fugitive gas, which simultaneously essentially ignited. Um, And it was also within close proximity of the floor joists of the crawl space within that structure. Um, So as Adam spoke about it, you know, your first fuel that was ignited in this situation was your uh, lumber of your floor joist system, which in return then ignited all of the storage that was within, you know, combustible storage that was within that crawl space. Thank you, Captain Matthews. Uh, I, it's surprising to me uh,
0: when you say that the dirt trenched from that lightning And the, the energy just is amazing. Uh, and then to go all the way from the tree through the dirt into the tank and then onto the home. It's. Uh, it's amazing energy. Uh, yeah. And the,
1: the energy just from that lightning strike alone that evening was three times stronger than any other lightning strike within a five mile radius of um, so you know, it was about 68,000 68, uh, amps of energy. Wow. So, is there anything? I
0: here I am going off off track already. Uh, you know, is there anything that they think drew that kind of energy strike, or is it just
1: random? Is there? Is... Yeah, it's it's just random. Um, I mean, as far as myself as a fire investigator, I, I haven't been able to determine why lightning likes one thing versus another. Uh, I don't know if Adam can speak on that or not, but uh, as far as my experience, um, it it appears to be just random. Yeah, I guess from the power perspective, but.
2: Yeah, right. I think you bring up an excellent point, right? You know, why are we talking about this now kind of more than ever? Um, And and part of that is there is data out there that, that suggests we're getting, you know, like, like Craig said, Captain Matthews said more energetic strikes and, and more lightning strikes in general. Um, and I think that's kind of due to, to, you know, climate instability where you have rapid changes in temperature, um, you know, just create more, more lightning strikes that typically are stronger. And there's a direct correlation between um, how strong a strike is and the, and the size of that arc hole. So, you know, one of the things I think we'll talk about later is, is ways of preventing, um, you know, arc hole formation due to lightning. But the truth is sometimes you get these strikes that are just so energetic. Um, it's incredibly hard to to channel that energy to ground in a uh, in an effective way without you know causing something to arc or or um, catch fire somewhere in that house.
0: Captain Matthews, I, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the crews responded when they
1: first showed up at seven zero zero five. It was initially dispatched as uh, what Hurricane described at that time as as a local box. Uh, which just sent uh, three engines, a ladder truck, a battalion chief. Once they arrived on the scene and they did have, you know, smoke presenting from the structure, they did upgrade it to a full box, which adds additional apparatus, additional chiefs, a safety officer. Um, the first engine uh, was directed by the battalion chief to position in the rear of the structure because there was a large swimming pool in the rear, and this was a non hydrant area. So they positioned in the rear of the structure, so that way they can use the hydraulic pump to essentially draft water out of the swimming pool to at least get the initial suppression operations underway until they can establish a larger water supply. Um, So the firefighters uh, initially went in to the first floor through what was kind of described as like a mud room uh, through the, the rear of the structure. Once they got inside, they, uh, were you know kind of confused because they had you know smoke floor to ceiling. Um, again, it was you know kind of lazy. Um, they had some you know heat uh, on the floor, so they kind of backed out thinking that they had a basement fire. So they went. Uh, there was a geographical uh, change uh, within the the grade of the structure, to where on the rear of the house, you know, half of it was kind of the first floor was at grade, and then the other half of it kind of stepped down and was the basement level was now at grade. So they repositioned their, their hose lines and went around to the basement entrance. When they got into the basement, you know, again, they kind of had lazy smoke. They used thermal imagers. They weren't seeing that they had any fire within that basement. So they're trying to figure out where this fire is because, you know, a portion of the house had a crawl space. The other portion was a full basement with, I don't remember off the top of my head, but it was about 12 or 14 foot ceilings uh, within that basement area. Um, So they're still trying to figure out where this fire is located. Um, And then about that time, there was a lieutenant that was on the back of the house, kind of where that first floor was kind of at grade. And they had called out that they had fire showing Uh, through what they believe was a first floor window so at that point in time the suppression companies had backed out of the basement and kind of repositioned back up to their original entrance Hmm. so what were the parallels between woodscape drive and the line of duty death of captain laird three years later so i'll let adam uh kind of speak on that because atf uh led the investigation uh with captain laird i was there Assistant, but I'd uh, like to let Adam kind of speak on that one.
2: Yeah, I mean, right off the bat, uh, Rod, I, I think the parallels were were um, undeniable. Right, you have uh, n- large structures, um, relatively new single-family homes, um, open floor plans. So, so Captain Matthews mentioned the amount of air available and light smoke showing. But um, in both of these incidents, you had very well-developed fires. Um, so we had the, the the same ignition sequence, right? We have lightning-induced failure of CSST located between um, the basement and the first floor. Um, in both of these cases, the flames first presented on the first floor, which is where these firefighters went, You know, with, with charged hose lines, with crews in place um, to put out the fire. Um, and, and in both cases, you had that, that sudden structural collapse between where the flames are evident on the first floor uh, with the firefighters falling through the floor into the basement, Um, and immediately transmitting maydays, you know, so these guys were, were calling for help. Um, we had, uh, personnel on the scene, we had personnel standing by and these conditions were so bad, these rescues just couldn't be made in time. Um, you know, one of the things that became very evident are, are these flow paths that develop when, after the collapse occurs. So you have, you know, the floor is is a good barrier between the seat of the fire um, in the basement or the crawl space, and where these guys are, on the first floor. And when that barrier goes away, because of that collapse, we realize very quickly with the computer modeling that that, that first floor becomes completely untenable. Um, you know, so we talk about the similarities. It's the it's the same ignition sequence. It's the same collapse. It's the the call of the mayday, but it's also the, the rescue of these firefighters just wasn't viable from where crews were on the first floor, they had to get a crew around to to the basement. So um, I, I think we realized very quickly that we have uh, two incidents that are very similar. That 7005 Woodscape Drive was not an isolated incident. You had two structural line of duty deaths in the same state with the same source of the, the same cause of the fire within three years of each other. Um, maybe we should, we should collect some more data and look into this.
0: So, um, I, I'm guessing this had a lot to do with your candidate research. Um, can you talk about why you picked the uh, Flynn LODD as a subject for your candidate research?
2: Yeah, sure thing. So, uh, you know, with, with ATF, one of our jobs and one of the things that we really strive to do is is, is to, to provide investigators and, and sometimes uh, firefighters with research and the stuff that just hasn't been, been looked at and we want to gain a better understanding of. Um, you know, I think we the ignition from lithium-ion batteries is being researched. From electricity is being researched, but but really the the whole process of of what CSST fires, of how they ignite, how they present, how um, flames spread, and in this case, right, how the the structure is consumed, um, became something that that we wanted to look into. So, because there was was no data, we re- realized this wasn't an isolated incident. Um, you know, we wanted to look into it. And, and frankly, um, the, the job that, that Howard County uh, uh, Fire Department, the, their investigators, the, the state investigators did collecting data, we knew that we had a lot to work with at, at both of these cases. And we could uh, really process that data to, to generate a work product to show um, what happened and then expand upon that data to try to figure out what we can do differently uh, in the future. And it seems like you did a real good job.
0: Can you describe the research methodology and uh, the work you did with these? Uh, you had quite a few collaborators.
2: Yeah, we, we really did. So, I mean, Howard County was excellent. Uh, Frederick County was excellent. Um, you know, frankly, the the the, the wives of, of both line of duty deaths. Um, so we're talking about, uh, you know, Celeste Flynn and, and Sarah Laird um, have been incredibly involved um, in all aspects of, of the investigation. Um so we had a great team behind us, and you know, we talk about the scientific method for to determine any origin and cause of a fire. You know, that same scientific method applies to to research. So, you know, the first step is that data collection, and that's where uh, the scene was so important. Um, you know, we had a good understanding of fire dynamics, lots of witness statements. Um, in both cases, the electronic data was critical. So, um, Captain Matthews talked about the lightning strike data, uh, the nine one one calls. We had the forensic Apple Watch, the biometric data, the movement data from that, the SCBA, portable radio, uh, actual movement data and channel data. So compiling all that, uh, you know, that that developed an excellent timeline. Um, you know, from, from a, a testing standpoint, anytime we do testing in a, a laboratory environment, we, we want to have a good understanding of what those variables are. So working with Captain Matthews, we actually restored gas to the, to the gas system inside of Woodscape Drive to figure out exactly how tall that flame would be with the, the same pressure loss from the tank through the exact same hole. Um, we were able to characterize, um, you know, the, the length of that flame in different orientations. So when we went to the lab, we, we could have a good understanding of, of how to um, recreate that flame um, in the laboratory environment one of the things that, that their fire chief asked for and Captain Matthews early on was a a computer fire model. Um, and a lot of that is, you know, we have to have good data, right? Junk in, junk out. But if we have good data in, we know we can create a good uh, computer fire model. So we, we, we built a, a large portion of the flooring system in the lab because we really wanted to characterize ignition, flame spread, um, heat release rate. Uh, in this case, mass loss was really important, right? You know, when that structure actually collapsed um so we we couldn't build the entire house in our lab but if we build the stuff that matters right you know how this fire started and spread uh moved and and eventually collapsed we can use that really good quality full-scale fire data to create a computer model to hopefully tell the whole story of of what happened um so it's really following the scientific method from the scene to the lab to to the actual computer model in the end to tell the story of what happened
0: yeah, I noticed you even had a load on the floor, um, when you were doing some of that testing, which I thought was interesting, you know, like you said, getting all the data as close as possible, um, to recreate and capture so you can learn from it. Uh, what, what were the main things that you learned from the field and full scale fire testing?
2: Yeah so we we really try to come up with good tangible takeaways you know for our fire investigators out in the field you know what do we look for for CSST fires but but also what we learned here is you know that that fires in, in large houses um, you know burn quite differently so you know the, the biggest the hottest topic in fire investigation you know rightfully so for the past 10 years has been ventilation right you know the the flame front propagation to areas of ventilation and how our fire patterns are driven by ventilation is, is so important. And what we realize is, is that that also applies to large structures. So, you know, we, we realize our fuels release so much energy uh, a lot quicker than they used to. And usually, what stops that energy from being released is when that fire runs out of air. So, a, a smaller structure is going to have less air available. So, you have a rapid um, heat release rate, a, rap- a rapid consumption of the air inside of that structure but when you put that same fire and those same fuels in a large house it takes a lot longer to consume that air. So when we talk about what that means to fire investigators but also firefighters is you have a lot more energy being released before they arrive at the scene because you have a lot more air available to these fires. So you know the first part was we, we can't apply our understanding of fire dynamics from a, you know, a smaller 1200 2000 square foot house to a you know eight thousand square foot house, we need to think about these fires differently, and really understand that the amount of air available to these fires um, is is different. So these fires are going to develop differently, and and frankly, you can have rapid changes within the structure as you try to as you try to fight these fires. So, you know, the first finding was you know the extremely large volume of both residences and the fact that these fires started on a basement level that smoke was, was available to fill the whole house and you had fresh air available to feed this fire. Um, that only increased the heat release rate, but you know, the increased heat release rate means you increase the the mass loss. So the available fuel burning, which in this case, you know, the fuel is that structure. So, um, not only do you have more energy being released, but more of that structure is consumed. So you have to start thinking about structural collapse issues, which we clearly had, um, you know, at, at both fires. Um, you know, the second thing we, we talked about was the fact that um, elevated fires are different. So, you know, we we as fire investigators you know, typically have a good understanding of fire dynamics, but we don't convey a lot of these points to the firefighters in the field. So Captain Matthews was saying, you know, when these guys entered the mudroom, they identified this fire was below them and then they went to the basement and they identified the fire was above them. You know, how is this possible? And in reality, they they were absolutely right because it was an elevated fire. So you have a fire in a crawl space that um, was allowed to to basically grow until it ran out of air. But you know, the height of that smoke layer is is elevated. So it doesn't appear to be a basement fire because the smoke isn't down to the floor, but it certainly isn't a first floor fire because it's located in between. So one of the things we realized is hey, we we need to do a better job training our fire investigators and, and also our firefighters about Um, you know, elevated fires and what that means. And, and, you know, a lot of these CSST fires occur in elevated spaces. So you you take a peek in the basement and it appears clear because that fire is in the interstitial space consuming the floor system. And then as soon as you're under the first floor, you're talking about collapse problems. So a better understanding of, of elevated fires um, is, is, is warranted because a lot of these CSST fires are, are elevated. Um, the last two things I'll touch on very quickly, the, the ventilation flow path um, existed uh, once that collapse occurred, right? So you have the, the, the firefighter falling through the floor and, and that changes everything. We, we said that ventilation is key and now you have a large opening above the seat of the fire and it's dumping all of those gases up through that opening and, and unless you do something to absorb the energy you know, from that fire in the basement or the crawl space, it, it just isn't viable at either location to rescue that firefighter through the floor. Um, and, and the last thing was the fact that, you know, CSST in particular, um, you know, is, is a fire that uh, inherently, because it's running in the interstitial spaces will attack that structure. So it's something that we need to consider and, and we need to start thinking about kind of taking a peek in that interstitial space um, as we start to do our size up of, of these fires, especially if a storm just rolled through, and we think these fires could be CSST related, yeah,
0: it's yeah, I I remember that in both situations, the chief or whoever was incident commander did do a three sixty. Um, wasn't one of the locations, you know, besides the fact that that crawl space was sort of hidden and you didn't know it was there if you were a firefighter. The um, was it the firefighter Laird's uh location where the chief couldn't even see the staircase going down, so it wasn't even like they they, they couldn't even caught on to what was going on from doing a three hundred and sixty.
2: Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, that structure, um, you know, the staircase was hidden on the side that you couldn't access because of a fence. Um, so we don't believe that that Captain Laird was aware that there was a basement stairway there, and and where he entered was from a concrete patio. Um, to a tiled floor where um, there was no indication whatsoever of a basement there. So you're you're going from a solid concrete patio to a floor, a tiled floor that 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 appears to be solid and feels solid, um, and then all of a sudden that 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 tiled floor lets go. And and ironically, both uh, Captain Laird and and firefighter Flynn fell through a floor that that was tiled with a non combustible um, top surface. So essentially the the combustible part burned away completely below the the floor joists, um, and the OSB, but that left a, basically an unsupported tile floor that, that when it collapsed goes from, from, from appearing to be, um, nothing in terms of heat, you know, no flame extension to all of a sudden a, a giant hole in the floor with, with both firefighters, um, you know, in the basement or the crawl space at that point.
0: Which probably looks perfect if you're, if you're able to see it until it breaks and yeah, that's rough. Uh, I'm sorry, you were going to say something.
2: Yeah, and and, and you make a great point, right? And um, what's another tool that that these guys in the field use is a thermal imager. And and these floors are so thermally thick um, that even on the thermal imager from our testing, there was no indication of a well-developed fire below. Um, you know, so we're trying to give these guys indications and stuff they can they can look for. So even if they could see through that smoke and use that imager, uh, that imager. Um, Showed that the floor was relatively cool and there was no indication of this well-developed fire below that non-combustible material or the multiple layers of non-combustible material of that time.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're using a material that people would put around a fireplace, you know, except it's on the floor, (laughs) right? So it's uh, um let's step back to the fire investigator side of this a little bit more and and can you take us through the, the development in the crawl space and related to what was observable by fire investigators afterwards? Um, Kathy had told me she wanted a particular eye toward indicators of elevated fire, forensic indicators of CSST arcing, and how you trace the lightning event path using physical indicators and
2: data. Yeah, so we, we talked briefly uh, before about, you know, really putting eyes on that interstitial space, whether you have to poke a hole in that ceiling Um or not. And, and one of the indicators in this case was the fact that, uh, you know, Captain Matthews mentioned these, these ceilings are, are 12 to 14 feet high. So you had an elevated smoke layer, but it, it was relatively faint. And, and that was because, um, you know, this fire, you know, located seven feet off the floor in the crawl space, just didn't have smoke that banked down that low. So you have a, a, what we call like a cyclic heat release rate process where the fire grows. It starts to run out of air without that smoke layer ever reaching the bottom. So, you know, kind of understanding how, how elevated fires burn differently and, and become ventilation limited differently is something that we need to, to, to really focus on. Um, Craig, do you want to talk about uh, at all about how we, we traced out that CSST line or, um, you know, actually looking at, at, at how these are formed? forms?
1: Yeah, so uh, the origin and cause investigation was about eight days long. Um, the entire contents of the first floor living room and dining room had collapsed into that crawl space area. So it took us a couple of days just to kind of start excavating all of the debris within our area of origin and try and start identifying ignition sources that were in the area. So once we uh, got through most of the excavation You know, we left a lot of the copper electrical wires in place. We left the CSST in place. We're looking for any arc damage that uh, could be there. We have some knowledge that um, CSST is kind of prone to lightning-induced failure uh, causing these fires. So we initially um, had put – the engineers from ATF had put water – to the CSST line in an effort to try and locate the arc hole because it's, uh, the arc hole is so small and sometimes it's very difficult to find, especially with all the soot and the uh, damage to it. So we're trying to uh, identify these arc holes as well as we have to identify what's just mechanical damage from the collapse to the CSST. So once uh, engineers had put the water to this CSST, we were able to quickly identify uh, holes that we didn't initially see by the by the naked eye. Um, so then we would mark those those holes, and there were several holes in in the line. Uh, but then we had to go back and look at each one of the holes to identify. Whether it was arc-induced failure or whether it was, again, mechanical, you know, the CSST being stretched because of the collapsed floor above on top of it. Um, so that's kind of how we, we traced it out and we identified the arc holes. And then, like Adam kind of spoke about already, we then put propane at the same pressure back to the line and put an open flame to it to try and identify what kind of a flame height we were getting We did vertical, we did lateral, and we did downward. um, Because at the end of the day, we truly don't know what the orientation was of that arc hole uh, in its place prior to the collapse. But we can suspect that it was probably most likely either uh, lateral or uh, facing upward. And it was kind of diffusing off of the flooring system. so that that's kind of how we uh we traced it out and we identified the the arc hole within that csst line so the reason you couldn't tell is because the csst has had
0: all this stuff collapse on it and it's sitting down here probably in twisted wreckage
1: yeah i mean honestly it was in a better shape than i would have expected with how much had collapsed on top of it um I mean, it held actually very well. Like I said, there was a a couple of uh, spots where it kind of had stretched the corrugation of of the CSST and uh, formed some additional mechanical holes, more or less, from that collapse. But uh, overall, the CSST was in relatively uh, good shape. And essentially, that was, you know, on the floor level, you know, on top of some of the remaining combustibles that were, were still or non combustibles that were of storage that was still in that crawl space. Um, but we had an entire, you know, floor system where the floor hadn't been consumed. We had furniture from the first floor, all that had collapsed down on top of it. Well, it's, uh,
0: it makes me think about some of the things that we've done in the past with arc mapping for electrical, but uh, it's nice. Yeah, it's it's kind
1: of, kind of similar.
0: Yeah, but it's nice to be able to have the trick of uh, what you guys did was bringing bringing the water through the line. I bet a lot of electrical guys would like to be able to do that. <laughs> um,
2: yeah, yeah, Rod, and one thing I'll add to that real quick, if you don't mind, um, you know, with with a high melting temperature of of CSST, um, you know, those arc holes sh- should survive. Um, you know, we haven't been to a fire yet where we haven't been, you know, where the the CSST had melted. You know, the melting temperatures in excess of two thousand degrees. So you know, as as engineers and investigators, you know that arc hole is is there, um, or it should be there, if this was something that um, that you think or you suspect happened. So it's worth going out there and looking for it. Um, you know, we talked about putting uh, air to it or, in this case, water. But I, I think a lot of investigators, once we we think it could be a lightning related, you know, we kind of stop there with with a good strike net report, um, which is one of the reasons we're we're kind of lacking some data on on CSST failure. Um, but if we're able to, to take a look for those holes, you know, and a lot of times it's in the area of heaviest damage because that's where the fire burned the longest, um, you know, there's a good chance you can find them um, and, and, it would, and, and kind of really get a, a well-established uh, origin and cause for that fire because the, the CSST just isn't going to melt. Um, so it's worthwhile to take a look. What can you do to render these places safe faster? Yeah, so I think from a, a safety standpoint, it's, there, there's two different things, right? So from a, from a firefighting standpoint, after these incidents occur, you know, we want to prioritize shutting down the utilities. We talked about that that once this gas starts to flow, there, there's no circuit breaker for a natural gas system. So it's going to flow continuously until the source of that gas is, is shut down. Um, you know, so if you're doing your 360, you think it could be a utility fire, turning off that gas is, is, is critical, um you know as as engineers in the past you know 30 years th- since the 1990s when CSST first you know was introduced into houses and we realized that these lightning induced failures occur um they've been spending a lot of time and effort and money to to figure out how do we stop you know this this lightning induced failure the arc induced failure of of CSST and and you know the first thing that that NFPA recommended um and and the code's recommended was to to bond the CSST, so you know it gives it an efficient path to ground if you have a lightning strike. Um, and as a fire investigator, we want to document the system, right? So if if we have a, a system that that's bonded and grounded either at the the main manifold or at the meter location, it, it you know it makes these these arcing events due to lightning um, less likely. So it, it's a layer of protection. Uh, we've certainly investigated plenty of fires where the system has been grounded and bonded and um, and these fires still occur. Um, you know, from a safety standpoint, the second thing that engineers do is is put in a lightning protection system. So you know we'll put in lightning rods on top of the house, trying to give a nice, efficient path to ground for this energy, so it doesn't um, ever energize, you know, the CSST system in that house. So the problem is, um, if you have an indirect strike, um, like we had actually a second fire in Howard County recently um, and energized the CSST system. and we still had multiple holes form um, in a CSST uh, line within the the house um, in between the first floor and the basement, um, even though this house had a had a robust lightning protection system. So you know, the biggest takeaway is uh, CSST is used now more than ever. There's over a billion linear feet of this stuff in, in American structures, primarily houses. And we don't have a way to to protect these systems absolutely from the effects of of, of lightning or even a household current, right? If you have a, a branch line feeding a receptacle that that comes into contact with CSST and a breakdown of that installation, we've had fires that occurred in interstitial spaces completely independent of of lightning.
0: What to either either of you want to say to this audience and and again this audience may be a little broader than fire investigators this time so i know we're talking to fire officers firefighters claim adjusters attorneys
1: uh are there some things that we missed that you you'd like us to cover I'd just like to kind of you know reinforce to the you know fire investigator community that you know Especially after a weather event has come through and if they're out to conduct an origin cause investigation to, you know, can't stress enough to make sure that they evaluate the CSST system if there is one uh, located within the structure. You know, we're we're seeing CSST in single family structures. We're seeing it in multifamily structures. We're seeing it in commercial businesses now, um, you know, just... One apartment building that comes to mind in Howard County, I mean, has probably a million miles of CSST run through it because, again, it's kind of, uh, you know, routed to each individual appliance uh, off of one line. So, again, just, uh, you know, take the time to kind of analyze and evaluate the CSST that may be in the structure. Um, Obviously, if there's no CSST, then they have to look for, you know, other uh, ignition sources um, or means that, you know, could have uh, started this fire. But uh, from a firefighter standpoint, you know, uh, I stress that, you know, I I tell all the firefighters in in Maryland all the time that after a weather event, they have to do a 360 um, and get around and get a picture of you know, a visual picture of all four sides of that structure and, you know, if they can start at the lowest level possible uh, when they're making entry because, you know, as Adam kind of spoke about, we're seeing a lot of these structural floor systems get consumed and uh, these firefighters can go walking on a floor thinking that it's a stable floor and the entire structural uh, components underneath them have been consumed by the fire. So we asked them to kind of, you know, start at the lowest level possible and kind of work up from there. But uh, I really appreciate you having us today. So thank you very much for having uh, both Adam and I.
0: We're so grateful for your time and for all the thought and uh, work that you that you have both put into
2: this. Uh, Adam, is there anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, Rod, I think the last thing I'll say is, um, you know, we were really hoping that that Woodscape Drive, um, you know, was an isolated incident. And, and you brought up the similarities between uh, Ball Road and Woodscape. And we realized that, you know, we really have to get the word out there. So we, we appreciate you guys, um, you know, allowing us to do the to do this this podcast. And, um, you know, the, the last thing I'll, I'll kind of leave you with is, you know, why are we talking about this now more than ever? And with the increased you know usage of CSST. Um, you know, within every structure that has C S S T, you have more of it than you do a uh, black pipe because you have a single run going to every appliance. Um, we have more lightning strikes than ever. These lightning strikes are more energetic. So we have more of a chance of having these arc induced failures. Um, the houses are about 70 percent bigger than they were 20 years ago. So you put all of these these variables together and it's just a perfect storm to have more fires and more severe fires. And, and I think we're seeing that. Um, so, everything that Craig said about making sure we rule out that, that, that interstitial space, but also just having an awareness of this. Um, you know, frequently, uh, you know, during the CFI program we're in now, we have to go to, to 100 fires. We're all set aside uh, any time there's a thunderstorm because I know I'm going to go to a lightning fire. And it's something that, that, that has, without fail, occurred where I'll go to two or three lightning fires somewhere within Maryland every time there's a summer storm. And it's something that we haven't talked a lot about, about firefighters or fire investigators. So um, please for firefighters out there, just keep an eye on the weather. If you think it could be lightning fire, which are are pretty predictable at this point, um, you know, it's something we just want to absolutely rule out. And as fire investigators, um, you know, if you think it could be a lightning strike and there is CSST, um, you know, maybe try to take a look for those holes. It is an additional level of work, but it just allows us to track, how many of these fires are out there, how and why they're occurring, and really just get better data that's out there. So again, thank you so much for having us here. Um, we look forward to to participating in, in that lightning module for CFITrainer.net. And um, you know, thank you for your time.
0: This discussion's been eye-opening in so many ways, and I really appreciate you guys bringing the CSST Fire Safety and Investigation Lessons Learned to our audience. We have some links on this podcast page to more in-depth discussion of CSST and these cases, and we encourage our listeners to review those. Also, our guests today are teaching this material in various venues, so if you're interested in a more extensive look at these CSST issues, check that out. This podcast and CFITrainer.net are made possible by funding from a Fire Prevention and Safety Grant from the Assistance to Firefighters Grant Program, administered by FEMA and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. There's also support from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, and voluntary online donations from CFITrainer.net users and podcast listeners. Thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Stay safe. We'll see you next month. For the IAAI and CFI Trainer, I'm Rod Ammon.